looking around to see uh, how that is happening in churches all over America. They're getting away from the truth of the Word of God. Getting, and so it's very important we get back to the book. And more than just focusing on being back to the book is living what the book says. Amen? And so that's what we, we're going to continue this morning with a series, the third part of this, Back to the Book. We'll take a time out after this, this Sunday. And uh, we're going to push this into January. And we'll continue this series. And, and we'll go deeper into this. But we're going to look at topics you know, as, we, as we've laid the groundwork of the inspiration of the Word of God, we'll talk about the inerrancy of Scripture this morning, but we're going to look at the confidence we can have in the Word of God and that it is authoritative for our life. It is the sole authority for our life and the way that we live our lives. Uh, if we say we're a believer and we're not submitted to the Word of God, I'm not sure you're really a believer. Uh, it is through the Word of God that our, our, our need is revealed, that our solution to our need is revealed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we need is right here. The way that we live our lives is right here. And if we're not submitted to this book, if we don't love this book enough to, to live by it, I really wonder what change has been made in our lives if, if there's been a change made. This book is that important to us in our faith, and that's why we're looking at this. But we'll get into in January, then we'll get to looking at some of the topics of today, the issues of today, and we'll go back to the book and look at those things through the, 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 the glasses, so to speak, this, the, of Scripture. We should always look at the things of, that are going on in life today and the world around us. We should view those through Scripture, not through our own preferences, our own desires, our own wants. You know, our own, uh, uh, our own opinions. It needs to be based on the, the, the Word of God. So we're going to be doing that. Well, a couple of things I'm, I failed to do a while ago. I want to mention this. Miss Carolyn Frost is back with us today. And uh, thank, you, th thank you for praying for her. And it's so good to see her back this morning. I told her she's a sight for sore eyes. And, uh, and I know she is grateful to be here. And uh, folks, when you can't come to church, you realize how much, how important it is. Amen. And uh, the, there are several in our congregation today that have struggled with and been sick and, you know, could not come. And, and then when they, they, man, you realize then how important it is. Uh, so glad that, uh, Miss Carolyn, glad you're doing much better and you're back with us today. David Smith, our state rep, is with us this morning. David, it's good to see you again. And, uh, and uh, yeah, appreciate the work that you're doing. And, uh, Miss Jan, I forgot to ask you how old you are this year. Don't answer that. that that's, a, that's a guy with a death wish, right, that asks a lady her, her age, so we won't do that. But I do, do want to say this before we, uh, before we get started. I want to say thank you to Raymond. Where did Raymond go? Okay, he stepped out. He was sitting over here, and I looked, all right, so anyway, I, 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 he'll hear this or you know, somebody can pass it on, but I'm grateful that, uh, you know, I, it, it, Raymond filled this pulpit a lot before I got here. He, he filled this pulpit a lot, and it gives me great confidence. Uh, I, don't, I don't have to be concerned if I leave uh, Raymond preaching or if I leave Pastor Aaron preaching. I, 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 don't, I don't have to leave him worry about what's being said in the pulpit, and I'm thankful for that. And there's a lot of pastors that don't have that. Uh, they really struggle when there's a need to be away. But I needed to be away last week, and Gene uh, and I left on Thursday. We went up to, we left Thursday evening or Thursday afternoon. We got up there about, I don't know, 10 o'clock or something. Went up to Pensacola and spent some time with our daughter, Jordan, and with her boyfriend, Ben. And it was a very profitable time as, as, and a good time. We had a good time with them, a lot, just hanging out and doing a lot of different things. 
but that was good. I needed to do that. And so I went to church with him on Sunday. So Raymond was here, and I'm very, very thankful for that. So I want to express that. All right. Well, let's get to the Word of God. If you want to turn in Scripture, there, we're, going to, we're really going to be all over the place. You can look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, but we're going to be in a lot of different places this morning. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture to you. I'm going to quote a lot of Scripture to you as we do. I'm really more teaching this morning than I am preaching. And uh, so we'll pray and ask the Lord to help me get through this quickly and uh, not, to, not to kill y'all. It is an hour earlier in Alabama, so we'll, we'll function on Alabama time this morning. And um, Father, again, thank you for the, the blessing of being here. Thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, now as we continue the study uh, of your word, uh, as we look at going back to the book, the importance of this book in our life, and, and that it is a book that we can trust, that we can lean upon, that we can have confidence that it, it is accurate. So this morning as we look at the inerrancy of Scripture, Lord, I just pray you'll bless this teaching time and that you'll use it, Lord, for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we are looking at that. So back to the book. And the title of this morning, The Inerrancy of Scripture, is kind of what we're looking at this morning. 2 Timothy, we've looked at this scripture uh, the last few weeks. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That, that phrase there means God breathed. He breathed out what we have in our Scriptures. He gave it to us. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, uh, for instruction in righteousness. So what, what we've looked at is the Bible is inspired by God. It was penned by 40 human authors in multiple languages on multiple continents over 1,600 years. And what we find in the Word of God, there are no conflicts and no contradictions. The entire book flows with the blood of Christ. You start at the beginning, you go to the end, and it's all His story. It's all about Christ, His love for us, God's love for us, what He did for us in the need that we had to be born again, to be saved. The story is there, and it's a story of Him. It's not a story. It is a story of me, but this isn't my story. This is his story. This is a book about God. It's a book about Christ and his love for us. And so, you know, I tell people when, when you became, become the main character in the story of Scripture, you, you've got the wrong star in, 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 on display there. Christ is the star of the book. And, and so as we look at this, you know, the, the critics today, the critique presented by skeptics and scoffers uh, alike is this. They say, you, you know, you say the Bible was inspired by God. But they'll say this, is it inerrant? You know, all right, we'll, we'll, all right, maybe God did inspire it, but is it inerrant? Is it truly without errors? And the simple answer is this, the Bible is the word of God, and God cannot err, therefore the Bible cannot err. If a, if a sinless, perfect God writes the Bible, gives us everything that's to go in there, why, do we, why would we think or assume that it is not perfect and sinless and inerrant? And, and, and so it is. So to deny the inerrancy of the Bible, you have to either affirm, you've got to affirm that God can err, which if he can err, then he's not God, or that the Bible is not the word of God. It can't be, it can't be, the, you know, it's one of the other. It's either the word of God or it's not the word of God. And if there are errors in it, then it wasn't presented to us by a sinless God and therefore you know, who are we following? Okay, So the Word of God is God's Word. He cannot err, therefore the Bible cannot err. So let's look at that. God cannot err. The Scriptures declare emphatically that it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18. Paul speaks of the, of the God who cannot lie in Titus 1.2. He is a God who even if we are faithless... 
He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. John 14, 6, as Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So God is truth, and so his word is truth. Jesus said of the Father, your word is truth. The psalmist exclaimed this. He said, the entirety of your word is truth. Psalm 119, verse 160. So the Bible is inerrant. It is God's word. He gave it and God cannot lie. So the Bible is the word of God. Jesus referred to the Old Testament as the word of God and the scripture cannot be broken. He said that in John chapter 10. He said also, he said, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That's what Jesus says of the word. As as we've already read, Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It was God breathed. And then Paul referred to the scriptures as the word of God in Romans 9, 6. And it came from, the word of God came from the mouth of God in Matthew 4, uh, 4, 4. But Jesus, it says, but he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the word of God that came from the mouth of God. Although human authors recorded the message, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said this to the religious leaders of his day. He said that you're making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. So he speaks of the word of God, the scriptures. They were going away from the scriptures. They were creating their own traditions and therefore they were making the word of God of no effect because they were changing it. They were going away from it. Jesus turned their attention to the written word of God by affirming over and over again. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, you can look at verse 4, verse 7, and verse 10. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus went back to the words of God. He didn't, he didn't always, you know, he didn't just say, I say, I proclaim. He went back to the word, okay? This phrase, it is written, occurs 63 times in the New Testament, And it's a strong indication of the divine authority of the written word of God. Amen? So when Jesus goes back, and others say that, it is written. So God has spoken about his word, and he has not stuttered about what he said about his word. God inspired that. He told us us in his inspired word what he believes of his word and what we should understand of his word. The God of truth has given us the word of truth, and it does not contain any untruth. Amen? That's what we have to get to. So the Bible is the unerring word of God. Listen, folks, as a believer, one of the things I take, and I don't check my brain at the door. It's not like I I take it on blind faith. There's a lot of evidence. We're going to look at some evidence this morning. But I believe, folks, with all my heart that this is the word of God, that it is the inspired word of God, that it is the inerrant word of God, it is the unchanging word of God. It is everything that we need today. Listen, if, if you prove today that the world was flat, as many any, I hope I don't offend anybody in here, any crazy people believe that the world is flat. you got to be senile to think the world is flat. There's too much evidence that the world is round. Now, if you can prove that, then the scriptures aren't true. Then I got to, if I don't, if I can't trust the, listen, I'm just going to put this out here first. This isn't a science book. It's not a history book. It's not a medical book. But everything that is in this book is true. When God approaches any subject, 
He approaches it, and what he gives us is true. And scoffers and skeptics and all of the folks have tried and tried and tried for centuries to undermine the Word of God and to prove that it's not true. To the point of someone I'm going to reference later, um, uh, Josh McDowell came to faith in trying to prove that the Word of God wasn't the Word of God, that it wasn't true, it wasn't inspired, it wasn't inerrant. He tried to prove those things, and what did he do? He came to faith in Christ as a result of that. This is the Word of God, and it is true. But what about science and history? Okay, so let's talk about that. Some suggest that Scripture can be trusted in spiritual and moral matters, but, it, but it's not always correct in historical matters. So, so the, the argument is, all right, we can, we can take what the Bible says about some moral issue or some spiritual issue. We can trust that. We can believe that. But, you know, it's not always true about the history of things. And, and well, listen, if there's errors in the Word of God, it's not the Word of God. We go back to that. And so, folks, that's where we got to nail this this down that I believe the Word of God. I had a friend tell me years ago, we were talking about missions, foreign missions and stuff, and he said, you know, where do you start if you're discipling someone? And, you know, I'm 17, 18 years ago, and I'm trying to, I said, well, you know, you're going to start with Jesus. You're going to start with who he is and our sin. And he said, no, you can't start there. And so I roll off a few other things. No, you can't start there. He went back to this. He said, you have to start here. You have to get them to understand that this is the Word of God. Because when we understand that this is the Word of God, then we realize it came from God, it's for us, then this applies to us, we're accountable to it, then we can submit to it. We start somewhere else. Well, what's the authority of that? The Word of God. Well, what is that? There's the skeptical problem, okay? So we've got to start here. So as a believer, we got to nail that down in our hearts, that this is the Word of God. This is the authority for my life. Amen? That's where we got to get to. So we have these, these problems with, they say, you know, there's spiritual issues, there's, there, there's, there's the moral matters, but they don't always, it's not always accurate historically. Look, however, these spiritual matters are often uh, interwoven with the historical and scientific. All right, I'm going to explain that. So a close examination of Scripture reveals that the scientific or the factual and the spiritual truths are often inseparable. You can't separate those. So, for example, we can't separate the spiritual truth of Christ's resurrection from the fact that he bodily rose, that his body permanently exited the tomb. He came out of that tomb and he physically appeared to many. Okay, scripture records that. You can't separate those two. You can't say, well, Jesus rose again, but his body's still laying in a tomb. That scientifically, his body is gone. Historically, his body is gone. The spiritual truth is he resurrected from the dead. Or, you know, if Jesus was not born of a biological virgin, if Mary was, it was just, you know, she was, uh, you know, she, God cleaned her up like a virgin. She was not a virgin, but she, you know, God made her, made her like a virgin. No, she was a biological virgin. She had never been with a man. And, and, if, and if Jesus was not born of a biological vir, vir, virgin, then he is no different from the rest of the human race. Amen? And, and if that's the case, then we're not sinless and he's not God. And, and if Jesus wasn't, if Mary was not a virgin, he wasn't born of a virgin, we're hopelessly in our sin. And what we're doing right now is foolishness. Why, why are we here wasting our time? But Mary was a virgin. And Jesus is the Son of God. He was born of a virgin. Also, the death of Jesus for our sins cannot be detached from the shedding of his literal blood on the cross. 
Scriptures say, for without shedding of blood, there's no remission. Hebrews 9 to 22. So there has to be the literal shedding of blood. You can't make that a metaphor. You can't make it something else and say, well, that's just a story. But, you know, Jesus can save us. Well, if Jesus didn't shed his sinless blood on the cross for our sin, then he, no, he can't. So those things, you cannot separate the, the actual fact of history from the spiritual and moral teachings of it. Adam's existence and fall into sin cannot be a myth. If there was no literal Adam and no actual fall, then the spiritual teaching about inherited sin and physical death and spiritual death are wrong. It is tied to the fact that Adam was a real man. He did fall into sin, and because of that, we're in the shape we're in today. Amen? So historical reality and theological doctrine stand or fall together. These things go together. So the history, the reality of history, and the theological teachings that come from that, they are intertwined. They go together. So Jesus' moral teaching about marriage was based on his teaching about God joining a literal Adam and a literal Eve together in marriage. You go back to Matthew chapter 19 and look at that. They, they, They were real people. God joined them together in marriage. So Jesus' teaching on marriage goes back to that. It's real people. It's a real thing God did. It's a historical thing. So in each of these cases, the moral or theological teaching is void of its meaning if separated from the historical or factual event. If you want to say Jesus, you know, Jesus rose from the dead, but his body's still in a tomb, that makes no sense. The two are locked together. So if one denies that the literal event happened, then there's no basis for believing the scriptural teaching built upon it. So it's accurate in the historical that it teaches. It's accurate in the theological things that it teaches. And those things are, are, are put together. Jesus even, he, he even compared Old Testament events with important spiritual truths such as his death and resurrection. If you, if you, um, you look at Matthew 12, 40, for his Jonas... For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus didn't say that because he thought that was some metaphor. He didn't say that because, you know, theoretically, you know, just making it was made up. Jonah didn't. He believed. He believed. And he says here, as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days, and, and, and so will the Son of Man be in the earth for three days and three nights. He believed that. Or when he speaks of, of his second coming compared to the days of Noah, and also in Matthew chapter 24, both the occasion and the manner of that comparison make it clear that Jesus was affirming the historical re- reality of those Old Testament events. He was affirming that. Again, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. He is God in flesh, God incarnate. And he is speaking to the, the, the truth that is found in the Word of God. He references the Word of God. Jesus told Nicodemus, if I, have, uh, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Folks, if we can't trust the Word of God when it comes to the factual historical events, how can we trust the Word of God on anything uh, theologically, morally, spiritually? Okay? So it, it's, the book is a whole, and everything in it is true, and it's for us today. So if the Bible does not speak truthfully about the physical world, then it con- cannot be trusted when it speaks about the spiritual world. The two are intimately re- related. 
So what is truth and what is error? As we're talking about truth, we're talking about error, what is that? So since the Bible is entirely true, it's wholly true, it is necessary to specify more clearly what is meant by truth and what uh, constitutes an error. So truth is this. Truth is very simple here. That which corresponds to reality. That's truth. Um, I, I watched a video the other day. And this guy's interviewing a, a college guy, and he's sitting out in a hammock, and, and, he, and he's in the conversation. He, he tells him, he says, all right, so let me ask you. He said, if I say 2 plus 2 equals 4, you agree with that? He said, yeah. He said, all right, so later on in the conversation, he says, now, if I say, if I ask you to affirm that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is truth, that is truth, can you agree to that? He said, no. He said, there's too many variables. <laughs> Folks, that's the, we, we laugh, but that, that's the reality of where we're at today. We're, we're at this place where truth is, is it's whatever I want it to be. Or whatever three of us get together and decide it is. That's truth for me. Oh, well, you know, I, truth for me is 2 plus 2 equals 85. That's truth to me. I mean, and that's, that sounds silly, but folks, that's where we've gone to in every area of life. From gender, the most simplified thing of a male and a female gender, to now we've got, again, 85. No, I believe there's 85. And, and you know, my gender could be different every day. It could, you know, today I feel like this. Um, that's for January. Okay. <laughs> truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. What is real? The reality of something. Error then does not correspond to, to reality. So truth is telling it like it is, where error is not telling it like it is. Therefore, nothing mistaken can be true. All right, so if somebody makes a mistake, there's an error. That can't be true. It's a mistake. Even if the author intended his mistake to be true, an error is a mistake, not simply something that is misleading. It's an untruth. So otherwise, every sincere utterance ever made is true, uh, even those that were grossly mistaken. If I'm sincere and, you know, it, it was just a, a, you know, my intention was to speak truth, but I speak falseness, th the Bible is very clear on that. Truth relates and corresponds to reality. So the Bible clearly views truth as that which corresponds to reality and error is what does not correspond to reality. And you can look at Leviticus chapter 4 verse 2 in that. There's a word there and the word that's used is for error and it is for an unintentional mistake. So an unintentional mistake is still an error. It's still wrong. And, if, and if, you can't say, well, that's truth and right, even though it was unintentionally an error because it's still an error. And the scripture is very clear on that. So the Bible everywhere implies a correspondence view of truth, which means truth corresponds to or with a fact. Not something that's changing constantly. It is a fact, and it corresponds to that. The Bible corresponds, has this correspondence view of truth. So, for example, when the Ten Commandments declare, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, in Exodus 20, uh, 16, it implies this, that misrepresenting the facts is wrong. 
Okay? So the scripture is very clear on truth and what truth is. Truth corresponds with reality. Error does not correspond to reality. So let's look at some things that people use against, uh, against the, the, the validity or the, the accuracy, the inerrancy of scripture. Let's, go, let's look at prophecy. All right. So when we talk about prophecy, there are 322 prophecies written in the Old Testament describing the first coming of Jesus. Now, the place of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was prophesied in Micah 5, two over 500 years before he was born. His birth in a manger was prophesied, as was his sinless life, and his miracles were prophesied. The manner of his death, listen to this, the manner of Jesus' death by crucifixion, it was described before crucifixion had ever even been invented. There was no crucifixion, there was no form of death killing someone by crucifixion when his death by crucifixion was prophesied and his resurrection was prophesied. So Jesus fulfilled every one of those Old Testament prophecies completely. How could men have known all those facts hundreds of years before they came to be in the life of Jesus Christ if not revealed supernaturally by God? Now, you go, well, you know, there's a few prophecies. Well, there was 322 uh, describing Jesus, okay, in his first coming. Now, think about this. Um, I'm going to give you some crazy statistics here, all right? So, if only eight prophecies of Jesus, eight prophecies were fulfilled, the odds of that, the probability of that, and if you get into statistics, and I'm not, I'm not great with this stuff. These numbers get too big for me. But here, here's what it says. If only eight prophecies were fulfilled, then the probability of that is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That means it's 1 in 1 with 17 zeros behind it. That's a, whole, that's a big number. I don't even know what that's called, but it's a lot, okay? So a simple way to understand this would be this. So let's imagine for a second that you've got quintillion. That's, this is America's, our, our politicians today think that we've got a quintillion dollars that is available to them to spend any way they want to, and uh, we've got a problem, so that's not, that is a real number, quintillion. I'm going to tell you what it is in a moment. But imagine for a second that you have a quintillion chocolate chip cookies, and they're covering an area almost twice the size of Florida. So let's take Florida, we double it, and now we're going to cover it with chocolate chip cookies, the entire area two feet deep. With chocolate chip cookies. That's a quintillion. That's a quintillion. And, it, and it's a million times a million times a million. That's a quintillion. And Pelosi would love to have that budget. <laughs> mixed in one cookie. Mixed in there, in all of that quintillion chocolate chip cookies, there's one cookie without chocolate chips in it. It's the one and only chocolate chipless uh, cookie in there. Okay. There's one. Now, what you do is you blindfold yourself and you start in Pensacola, Florida, and you walk all the way to Key West, Florida, and you stop one time and you pick up one cookie. The odds of you picking up that chipless cookie is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's now, that's if Jesus fulfilled eight prophecies. It's the same, same odds, same probability. But see, here's the thing. Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled 322 recorded, 29 on one day. Now that's fact. The prophecies of Scripture are compelling evidence of the supernatural nature of the Bible. 
The Bible has been, here's another argument, the Bible has been copied by humans throughout the centuries. So can we really trust its accuracy? Well, first of all, those scribes who wrote down the scriptures were professionals at their job. This wasn't, this wasn't me and, and Brent in a room, okay, watching a ball game and translating, moving, copying scriptures. That's not what this was. And, and, and their work, they were professionals at their job. And it was very meticulous work. And they had, they had checks and balances and accountability on that. I mean, folks, you've got to understand I'll take the person in here who has the greatest love for the Word of God, and I, I don't think it compares to those folks back then and, and the, the way that they approached the Scripture and, and the, the accuracy of it and, and understanding to the point of they would clean their quills with certain names of God, and there were times where they would not even write an, an entire God in His full name because it, 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 they just wouldn't do that. Because they so honored God and they honored His Word. But listen, if there was an error found, it wasn't left you know, unchecked. It wasn't left... If they found an error, they fixed the error. They corrected it. They were dedicated to accuracy. And it wasn't just one person. Ah, one person, he made a mistake. He messed up. No, that's, a, that's really a, a fool's excuse is what that is. Because if you understand the history of this and, and the way they went about it, it was very, very, very accurate. Present-day scholars now, they contest the accuracy of the Scriptures in a number of ways. First, first fact we'll look at is this. In 1947, how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Now, we've been there. We, we actually, uh, when I went in, oh, uh, I think it was in, in 2002 and I went, we actually got to go over into the area where those caves are, we actually crawled through some of those caves. And it's just little caves there in an area, in a, in an area called, uh, what is it called, Qumran. I was about to go blank on that. That's why I write everything down. When you got got 100 people looking at you, your brain freezes up. So we're in Qumran, and you've probably seen pictures of it. And they look, they kind of just look like, it's just sand, and it's uh, sandstone, and so it washes out easy. But there's some openings in there, but we, we went through those. But the, back in 1947, there's a shepherd boy out there, and he's throwing rocks around. He throws a rock, and it hits something, and he thinks he hears something break. So he goes and investigates, and what is discovered is, is these scrolls that now we refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it was an amazing, an amazing find. And, and these scrolls were written by a Jewish group called the Essenes who were down in that area, and they lived about 200 years before Jesus. And they're copying. That's what they were down there doing. These folks would go and they had these... Ba We've seen this. Remember this, Gina? The, 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 uh, the ceremonial cleaning place. So they would go and they would wash themselves before they would go and work on the, the, the scriptures. I mean, that's how, how, how serious they took it. They would bathe and get clean and put on fresh linens and everything before they would go to go and copy the Word of God. So all the documents that were found in that cave were Old Testament in nature, and they dated to about 125 B.C. So those are old scriptures. Now, within them, they found a complete scroll of Isaiah. Now, prior to this find, the oldest copy of the Hebrew Old Testament text is the, uh, the Masoretic text of Isaiah, which is 1,000 years older than what they found there. Okay, So they've got, a, they've got a, a copy of Isaiah. It was written in 916 A.D. That's when they, they know that came from. So it's 1,000 years older than what they found there in Qumran. Well, what you would expect is there'll be differences. There'll be errors in there. And what they found is comparing them, they're, 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 it's like identical with just minor spelling differences. 
Okay, so we might spell a word different. We, we go back, you, you, I mean, you take the King James Bible and a new King James Bible, and you got words that are spelled different. Savior is spelled S-A-V-I-O-U-R, right? King James spells it that way. How do we spell it? S-A-V-I-O-R, right? Man, I put myself out there when I start spelling. <laughs> um. So what you find is the, the impact of that discovery was immense to our confidence in the accuracy of the Scriptures. Because you have all these copies of Scripture that are found, and we find that they're identical over thousands of years. When you go thousands of years back, it's identical. It's the same, and it has been very well preserved. Listen, here's where I go on that. I can't prove it any other way than this. I believe a God who can inspire His Word can protect His Word. That's what I believe. And that, that's part of my faith as a believer. I believe God has protected his word. Now, I do believe there are those who undermine and want to undermine this. I believe there are those who are in translations that undermine some of the truths of Scripture. That's why you have to be very careful with the translation of the Bible that you get. You're, there are some things in there that there are those who want to rewrite some things and, and re change a word here or change a word there. And you have to be very careful of that. So another fact, there are over 500 complete copies of the New Testament available and more than 24,000 partial books. This is, this is ancient text that we have, okay? And, and, and the earliest copy being from about 125 A.D. All right, so that's within 100 years of the life of Jesus Christ. We got texts that were written within 100 years of his life. All right, that's how, how close that was. We have the manuscripts. Now let's compare that. One of the most famous and most widely read authors in antiquity was Homer. How many of you ever had to read Homer in, uh, in school? You had to read, who would you have to read? Yeah, uh, what would you read? Yeah, the Iliad and the Odyssey. So the Iliad, listen, the Iliad was written in 900 B.C. The oldest copy or the earliest copy that we have is from 400 B.C. That's a 500-year difference in when it was written and the oldest existing copy we have today. So, uh, and there's only 643 manuscripts to support it. But you know what you will not find? You will not find anybody who scoffs at the accuracy of Homer's Iliad. And yet we, we, we will scoff at the Word of God as though, and you look at the thousands, the, the 500 complete copies, 24,000 partial books of the New Testament that we have available. Look, we have, we have great documentation to the reliability of the Bible. It's overwhelming what we have available to us. All right, another thing, archaeology. How many of you like archaeology? I love archaeology. I think it's fascinating. All right, so here's the lie. Archaeology has proved the Bible wrong. And I'll just say to that, wrong. That's wrong. So these types of statements have been widespread through the 19th and the 20th centuries. Um, the fact is more archaeological discoveries have supported the Bible than not. Now, I'm not going to say there, there's not one discovery that's disproved the Bible, there, there, but most of the archaeological discoveries, when it relates to the Bible, it confirms things from the Bible, and it supports the Bible. Now, archaeologist Nelson Gluick, you'd have to go and look up his name, but he made 1,500 discoveries using the Bible as his guide. So he took the Bible, he read it, he said, oh, this should be here. He goes and he digs, and they, boom, wow, 
found it. That told him where it was. He stated that no archaeological discovery has ever been made that contradicts the historical content of the Bible. I mentioned Josh McDowell earlier in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He wrote this. He says, after trying to shatter the historicity and validity of the Scripture, I came to the conclusion that it is historically trustworthy. If one discards the Bible as being unreliable, then he must discard almost all literature of antiquity. Now, here's a fact. In the past 100 years, archaeology has, uh, has verified much history contained in the Bible. It's verified it. So, for example, for years, Sodom and Gomorrah was considered to be mythological. They, they thought, well, that's just, you know, it's not real. It was just made up. It's just a story. Well, it's interesting. Recent excavations in Tel uh, Mordic, which is now known to be the site of Ebla, which is one of the earliest kingdoms in Syria, they undercovered there, uncovered as they were doing these excavations, they uncovered about 15,000, not 100, 15,000 tablets. So as they began to translate these, some of those tablets that have been translated mention, guess what? Guess where? Sodom and Gomorrah. They mention it. It's amazing. A mythological place that's recorded in one of the earliest kingdoms in Syria. So Sodom and Gomorrah existed. It was real. Other archaeological findings include proof that there was a ruler named Belshazzar. He was real. The Hittites not only existed, but also had a vast empire. That's been proven through archaeology. Also, uh, King, how many of you, I'm going to give a name. Let's see if anybody recognizes the name. King Sargon. You recognize that name? That's awesome. Anybody else? You recognize that name? Yeah, it was, it, I had to go look it up. I had to do research. Where's King Sargon? Listen, he's mentioned in Isaiah 20, verse 1, and, and he actually ruled. The scripture speaks, it says this, it says in the year that Tartan came to Ashdod when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and he fought against Ashdod and took it. So you have Sargon and, and so he actually ruled and he conquered Syria in 721 B.C. Archaeology has proven that to be true. So when you look at historical matters, uh, matters in the book of Acts, uh, the archaeology has proven this. It's demonstrably accurate what the Word of God says about those sites. So, so far the findings of archaeology have verified and in no case disputed historical points of the biblical record. So archaeology has absolutely confirmed historical details that Luke included in his gospel. And we're going to look a lot at this passage over the next few weeks. But in Luke chapter 2, when you read, let me just read the first three verses of Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed, depending on your translation. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. We know that story. We read that. It's a Christmas story. And, we, and it gets all the ball rolling there. Everything's going on. Uh, there was a time when scholars thought, though, that Luke had lost his mind, that he had missed the boat entirely regarding the events surrounding the birth of Jesus because the critics argued that there was no census. There was no census in that day. They argued that Quirinius was not governor of Syria at that time and that everyone did not have to return to his ancestral home. But archaeological discoveries show that Romans, uh, the Romans had a regular enrollment of taxpayers 
and also held censuses every 14 years. And this procedure began under, guess who, but Augustus. The scriptures are accurate. Archaeology has found that Quirinius was indeed governor of Syria around 7 BC. And it's supposed that he was again the governor around 6 AD. And that's the date that is described by Josephus, who is... Few doubt Josephus. They, he was such a great historian in, in what he recorded. Um, so also there was a papyrus found in Egypt that gives directions for the conduct of a census. So all of these things, all of these things in Scripture that at one time was scoffed at, well, Luke does a great job elsewhere, but this, these details here are wrong. And every detail that, that he recorded is accurate. So folks, while archaeology can verify history and shed light on various passages of the Bible, it is beyond the realm of archaeology to prove the Bible is the Word of God. That's not the job of archaeology, to prove, oh, that proves the Word of God. No, archaeology is is helpful in illustrating that many biblical passages are historically accurate. And when we find that information, we go back again and go, that just confirms. Because every time the Word of God speaks to some issue, it speaks with accuracy and clarity and with truth. Amen. And the more of these things we learn, then it gives us a greater confidence, again, in the Word of God, that what He has given is inspired and it is inerrant. All right. I'm going to hit this real quick. Scientific proof. All right, so there's some proof. Uh, Isaiah 40, 22 says this. It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So the Bible uh, said that the earth is circular or a circle when viewed from space. Now, there there should be, there should be, there is, but there should be no argument here, okay? We we have many well-publicized evidences for the circular, uh, that the earth is a, uh, a circle. It's a globe. It's not just a circle, a flat circle. It's a globe. It's a a sphere. And, and we, we've got a lot of proof. So you've got Ferdinand Magellan who completed a voyage around the earth. You've got powerful telescopes used on land and in the air. They can see and they see the curvature of the earth. You have satellite pictures now. We didn't always have that. They didn't have that when the scriptures were written. We have satellite pictures today looking at earth uh, that confirm Isaiah's picture to be 100% accurate with respect to the earth's shape. That, that that would even be a discussion today blows my mind, and yet, and yet it is. But the scripture was very clear on that. Number two, the earth's moving uh, inhabitants, human and animals, are likened to grasshoppers. And again, that's accurate. When you think about that, looking at grasshoppers, you, you can see, I, I think, of movie clips where they come in over a city and... Or, or pictures you've seen where they're looking at an aerial view, maybe of a, I, I was thinking of Japan, and, and maybe where they're crossing the streets. And there's just hundreds of people. And the light changes and they scurry across and the light changes again and they stop, you know. And you say, but what does that look like from above? It looks like ants or, or, or grasshoppers. And the animals on the, on the you know, if you looked at a, a, a field of, of cattle from above, you would say, you would say, well, it looks like grasshoppers. The scriptures are clear. Then you have the, that God spreads the heavens like a net or tent around the earth so man will have a suitable home. Um, that, that amazes me when he says, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. I mean, think about this. If you go outside at night, it amazes me when I look because our atmosphere is simply held in place by the gravity. I mean, if you could, if you could just, if you were Superman and could fly, you'd just fly right out into space. You, you, and and there's, no, there's no 
there's no nothing there holding it in other than God said, this is the way it's going to be. And he set this thing up and he put our earth there and he, and he created gravity to hold our atmosphere in place. That blows my mind that the oxygen that is around and it's very, very small layer that's around the earth. And yet for us, it's huge and it's exactly what we need. Scripture was very clear to that. Uh, again, the, 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 the scriptures teach that the earth is circular and it spins on an axis. And if you looked in Acts, uh, or I'm sorry, in Luke 17, verse 30, it says, Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. How, how is that possible that folks are in bed and folks are working at the same time? That doesn't make any sense unless you consider the earth is revolving, the sun is fixed and the earth is revolving and we got day on one side, night on the other. Scripture speaks very clearly to that right there. That makes sense now because it's, it's, there's the, the, the earth is spinning on its axis. So we have day, we have night, we have day, we have night. These folks are sleeping, one's taken. We have these folks that are working, it's day and one's taken. Scripture is very clear. The different glory of the stars. Paul says there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. Well, Paul obviously could have looked out. We can do that. We can go out and look out at night and say, well, that star is brighter than the others. Well, our sun is pretty bright. That's a lot brighter than any star we see at night. Uh, but yet Paul, while he could see the obvious that there were some differences in glory, there's a difference in our sun, there's a difference in our moon, and then the stars at night, there's a difference. But he had no way of knowing without supernaturally being revealed to him for him to even stay, for one star differs from another star in glory. You know, there are seven different categories or types of stars. And it's all related to uh, the factors that go into it are, are, are uh, temperature, size, brightness, and density. Paul, Paul had no way to know that. But God knew that and he revealed it to him. When it speaks of the stars and the accuracy of that, it's true. They're not all the same out there. Um, the earth is free-floating in space, Job 26, 7. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. That blows my mind right there. When, when I start thinking about, I got to thinking about this, and you can get in a wormhole real quick and go, whoa, whoa. But you think about the emptiness of space. And I, 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 I love Star Trek. So you think about you know, you're, you're Captain Kirk, and you come up on this planet, and it's just floating there. If you watch Star Wars, the planet, it's just floating there. Well, you go, it's just floating there. It, it ought to fall. But it, where would it fall to? Why would it fall? It's its own, it's just float, it just floats there. This thing that has all this unimaginable weight, earth, it's just floating there. And it's like as we're, we're laying, putting ornaments on our tree. You know, you go, but it's hanging on a tree. God says, ah, we'll put earth right there. It ain't hanging on anything. It's just there. And this, the scripture says that he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. That blows my mind. Uh, the earth is hot on the inside. Yeah, maybe if you've seen a volcano, you might figure that out. But scripture says in Job 28, 5, for as, for, uh, as for the earth, from, from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Um, water cycles. The fact that, that we have water cycles, that the water goes up out of the ocean and, it, and then it goes and you rain and it goes to the rivers and the rivers flow into the sea that never fills up. I'm not going to read the scriptures because we're short on time. There, there's a lot of scriptures right there on that. So again, the Bible is not a history book. It's not a science book. It's not a medical textbook. Whenever, but whenever the Bible speaks of any of these issues, it speaks truth. 
Amen? The last thing I'm going to mention, and then I have a video I want to show you, is this transformational power of Scripture. And we think about, I think about the apostles here. When you consider the apostles after Jesus was, was crucified and he was buried, where are they? They're, we find them hiding. They're all together. They're fearful, scared to death that they're next. And then Jesus rises from the dead on the third day. And they meet him face to face. And we see a change in everyone that met Christ face to face. When they met him, there was a transformational change that occurred when they met the living, resurrected Christ. You know, instantly they became fearless and bold witnesses for Christ. They were changed. They were transformed. I would imagine that your life changed when you came into faith in Christ. You know, I've said it before. If, if meeting Christ, if, if being born again, if it didn't change your life, you probably didn't get born again. I'm convinced more than ever that when we truly come in faith with Christ, it changes us. You can't say, I met Jesus here, but I'm the same today that I was before I met Jesus. It's impossible. It's impossible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Okay? So the Word of God transforms lives. It transformed our lives. It transforms lives. So I want to share a video that we, we got. Now, I'm going to preface it with this. He's going to talk about a Bible conference. It, it, it was just a misunderstanding in what, we, what I asked him to send us. Uh, and so he thought this was for a Bible conference. It doesn't matter. It's going to state the point very well. But you're, you're going to see the impact of the Word of God in a people's language and the impact it has had in their life. Okay, so... It's about an eight-minute, eight-and-a-half-minute video, I think. You're, you're going, you're not, it's not going to feel like that, all right? So let's go ahead and show that, Cheyenne, and then, and then we'll be done.
I haven't only met Stephen a couple of times. <laughs> Bring a few tears. I shouldn't have looked over there. I was going to ask you, Marvin, if you understood anything they were saying. Yeah, see, but not more, not the moy, not the moy. All lots of languages there. So we see there, we see from that video that all stir your hearts on on the the importance of the word of God and the power of the word of God. Them them reading that, and that's Stephen and Carolyn Crockett. Now I I, I wish you could have understood what they were saying because I think the guy on the left at the end, I think he was really um, praising Stephen and Carolyn for their work there. And Stephen, I only meet him one time, but through correspondence with him, I've gotten to him a little bit, and I think he's a very, I think he just showed his humility there in not saying what was being said um, beyond that. But we have the Crockett's that are there ministering to the Moy people and the importance of the Word of God, folks. It's so important. We have Todd Brain and his family here that work with Wycliffe and the Bible translators. The importance of getting the Word of God out there. Because, folks, it is the Word of God, the power of the Word of God that transforms and changes lives. Amen? Now, we're going to talk more. Does that, do you, was that not awesome? That's the fastest eight minutes I think I've ever seen. That flies by, and I've seen it a couple of times now. It's just, it's just amazing as you see those impacted lives, and you see it in there. Just in their faces, you see it. Pastor Aaron, you and, you and the team can come, come forward. We're done. Um, Folks, the, the Word of God, it is inspired. God inspired it. It is what we call it, the Word of God. And it is inerrant. There are no mistakes. I, 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 you know, if, the, if you could prove the Word of God, that there was something in there that was, was inaccurate. I mean, just not, not a, a letter that was changed or something. I'm talking about it says something that is factually not true. It would, it would just erase the confidence that I have in the Word of God. But there's, there's nothing there. The Word of God is inspired by God. It is His Word. He's given it to us. And folks, it's inerrant. There are no errors there. Therefore, we can trust it. It is authority because Christ and God Almighty is the authority. He is authoritative. He has authority. He has given his, us His Word. That Word is authority in our lives. We trust it. We lean upon it. We, we, do, do you hear a love for the Word of God in those men's voices? There's a love for the Word of God. As we go into this season... Of Christmas now, and I think a lot about at Christmas how we 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 spend so much focus on Christmas. It's, it's the Lord never told us to remember His birthday. Nowhere in Scripture do we find that He said, "Hey, throw me a big party every year." But yet, I would say a lot of what is goes on at Christmas has nothing to do with Christ. But as we, as believers, enter into this time of of Christmas, remembering the birth of our Savior, it is an important day. But it's only important because there was a crucifixion and a resurrection from the dead. And we know this because of the Word of God. I want to challenge you as we, as we enter into these next few weeks as we approach Christmas is to, to give the Lord something. Give Him a gift as we enter this time of season. And that gift being your time 
your recommitment, your refocus on the Word of God in your life. Because it'll give back exponentially. Whatever time you pour into it, what God pours into you through it is immeasurable. So that's my challenge this morning. In just a moment, we're going to have a we're going to have a time of reflection and invitation. We do this every week, but I'm not giving a fancy invitation today. And uh, in fact, I'm not even going to ask you to stand this morning. I'm not going to ask you to sing this morning. Our team is going to lead us in 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 this time, and I'm just going to encourage you to spend some time talking to the Lord and, and just seeking God. What is it that you want to do in my life? What is it that I need to focus on? In my life, it, have I gotten away from a love for your word? That, that video convicts me. I go, wow, do I love the word of God the way those men love the word of God? I want to challenge you to get back to that. And this morning, you may be here and say, Pastor, you know, I've heard what you've said. I've heard the gospel through prayer. I've heard it even in the message that, that Jesus came. As a man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life and died on the cross for my sin. And he rose again the third day. He proved he was God. And he proved that he and only he could do what he had told us he would do. And it is only through a relationship with Christ that we can have eternal life. So this morning, if you'd go, Pastor, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. I've never been born again. And I believe with all my heart, if that's you, you know that. You sense it. You feel it. Your heart may be pounding right now. And today is the day you need to come forward and trust Christ as your Savior. So as we as we go into this song and our worship team leads, I'm just ask you to sit there in an attitude of prayer and I hope you will spend some time just talking to God and when they're done we'll pray and we'll close but if you need if you need someone to take the scriptures and introduce you to Christ this morning I invite you to come come forward